Season two of Breaking Beta is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. After the episode, use the code BETA15 for 15% off of your next order at gonarly.com or click the link in your show notes to have the code automatically applied. Gnarly Nutrition. Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. Marie, I think it's time you filled me in on some more details here. There is no problem, no matter how difficult or painful or seemingly unsolvable. Dave, can we simply just focus on my feelings here? The details don't really matter, do they? There's nothing to be done. There's nothing to be done, Paul. The The details don't matter. We just focus on the feelings, no matter how painful or difficult or unsolvable the problem might be. <laughs> yep, just ignore everything. Just go. <laughs> Full bore. All the way through. The only way out is through, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, today's episode, I think, is maybe a bit of a like precursor of sorts to where I think we're probably headed in general with this podcast, um, at least in part. You know, we'll be looking at one main paper review, but then we're also exploring a bunch of associated papers in order to come up with how climbers and climbing coaches can use the research to their benefit. And we've, we've done that to a degree. Um, and I think we'll still continue to look at individual papers, but I'm sort of liking this format of going down rabbit holes and seeing what else I find. How about you? Uh, yeah. And it's kind of what, along the lines of what I always want the process of reading research, at least for me to to be is taking, you know, this theory or this one instance of exploring this one category of thing, but how can we make this as widely applicable as possible? How does this inform our process? Like the whole goal is taking things from theory to application. I think as we dig into these papers that we're not just digging into one, but we're coming up with a bit more complete set of processes that we take into coaching or improving performance. It's kind of where we want to end up. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, today, the main paper we started with is by Rob Gray, same author from last week, um, who frankly has done a tremendous job of continuing down rabbit holes and asking the next obvious questions that give us as coaches the answers that we're looking for. Um, this paper is titled Links Between Attention, Performance Pressure, and Movement in Skilled Motor Action. It was published in 2011 in Current Directions in Psychological Science. So essentially, there's this growing body of research showing that where an athlete focuses their attention while performing a skill can have pretty dramatic effects on that performance. Mm -hmm. um, and it sort of depends on their current skill level. And then you add performance pressure into the mix, be it a comp or a last day of a trip or a season coming to a close or, you know, whatever the case may be, um, where we tend to focus our attention in those situations might be exactly what the research is saying is the wrong place to aid performance. So, Today, we're going to be looking at some of the mechanisms that might be behind this as it pertains to our movement, which as climbers is pretty damned important to the outcome of our performance. Absolutely. Let's dig in. That was a mouthful, but yep. <laughs> I think, let's, I think you nailed let, it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get this thing rolling. 
You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Look, you two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. And with our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready? 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 I'm ready. Are you? I am not overthinking it. Um, I'm an expert level podcaster, so I'm <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, you know, we've all heard that phrase, right? The you're overthinking it. I think that's that gets thrown around a lot. Um, we might say it when we think someone is trying too hard to get something right, um, that they should just let it happen or let the body climb, as some people say, or, you know, some other phrase that honestly is much easier said than done. Um, yeah. It's like, I don't really think those phrases in terms of finding a way to fix whatever the issue is or stop punting off something, that's not super helpful, right? Uh, No, no, it's, it's so hard to, to just say, okay, I'm going to stop thinking about it. I'm Mm -hmm. just going to totally switch gears. You know, Um, and you know, if that is true, because we hear coaches say it all the time, we hear athletes say it all the time, overthinking it. If that's true, why is overthinking it bad? What is, what is overthinking it? What's that actually look like? And, you know, there, there are two ways to focus your attention essentially. uh, And those are internally and externally. Internal is putting your attention on the way you're executing the skill and in in relationship to your body, like my hips need to be shifted here. I have to squeeze my butt on this move, things like that. I Um, need to feel my right gastrocnemius as I toe into (laughs) the uh, foothold. Exactly. Exactly. If you can, the further you can narrow it down, the better in some people's opinions. Yeah. (laughs) Um, External focus would be more focusing on the intended outcome of the movement, um, or the even the hold itself, or um, you know, there's there's some research looking into even allowing yourself to be completely separate of the performance, which would be, you know, like hearing noises or thinking of something completely outside of the the performance. Um, when I when I sport climb, I'm able to pick out individual voices in a crowd. Um, mm-hmm often voices that I know and I hear them very clearly. So maybe that's a byproduct of being externally focused. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And I think another distinction that can be used here is like, it's pretty common in the strength training world too, or, you know, you've got your internal and your external cues. I think they share Mm -hmm. a lot of similar concepts. Like, you know, in a deadlift an internal cue would be feel those hamstrings stretch as you go down, try and use those hamstrings to drive the weight off the ground external cue would be like push your hips back towards the wall behind you on the way down something like that right right another context to view this internal versus external uh different spheres perfect yeah and there's there's some quite a bit of research saying that for novices focusing focusing on the execution of a skill can be beneficial to learning so telling them feel that hamstring stretch can be beneficial to them actually learning it but Mm -hmm. when it comes to experts focusing on the skill execution can lead to a worse performance, um, overthinking it, so to speak. So an internal focus of attention appears to be good for practice, uh, and for novices. And that includes experts learning a new skill because they're Mm -hmm. novice at that skill. 
but for performance in general, an external focus seems to be the thing that most research is suggesting. There's, you know, this paper links several things together, which I think is really important. And there's also evidence that when the pressure is on, that turning to an internal focus of attention, um, which is what we often think we need to focus on Mm -hmm. to do the exact right thing, you know, that might actually be the reason we end up punting. We, We come up short on an easy dead point or we freeze up or whatever it is. You know, we choke under the pressure and fall on a spot where we just couldn't imagine ever falling. And this is saying maybe that's because we're turning our focus of attention internally, trying to get everything right. And that's the reason our performance goes bad. Mm-hmm. And what I like about this um, elements of what changes when that direction of focus changes is he's broken it down into these couple different categories that help us kind of put f- things further into buckets to maybe try and isolate what we can work on to improve to maybe fix this issue or make it happen less. Mm-hmm. Real quick, I, I looked at this study um, It's from 2015, and I just want to illustrate how much pressure can change these things Um, before we get into what these individual pieces are. um, I thought this study was really interesting. 2015, looking at golf, um, these are all PGA players. They looked at 23,000 putts in the PGA, and they found that as the amount of potential money that could be made by a putt increased, the likelihood that putt would be made decreased. Um, so even for professional athletes, as more pressure got put on, the likelihood that they would actually perform well went down. Um, mm-hmm. So I just think that's that's really interesting. And they theorize that the mechanics of the putting was what was changing. And that might also be the case for climbers. It's funny you mentioned that it was about two weeks ago. I think there was some tournament. Um, we were watching it with some friends over here as the, I think the PGA championship, but in like one of the later holes, they actually went back and did a replay of one of the putters, uh, one of the golfers puts his takeaway and how he brought it back. Mm. And it was the most erratic, wildest thing I've ever seen. It actually turned into a meme for a little bit floating around. So wow. the pressure was definitely getting to this person for sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's fascinating. These are professional athletes who've been, who've done this over and over and over and over and over. And still once the pressure is there, their, their mechanics, what we might call the basics changes. Absolutely. So like you said, he breaks it down here into four types of movement effects that have been observed in the research. Very, very similar to what we saw last week in his paper about embodied perception. Um, We're going to go through each of these and then talk through some of the ways that we can use this information as climbers and as coaches. Mm -hmm. Um, Number one is changes in movement variability. Now, Climbing is a complex sport. No two movements, even if both are the same technique, you know, let's say two drop knees, for example, are exactly the same. Um, They just aren't. They're going to be different. Even if you're doing the same drop knee on the same move over and over, it's going to change a little bit. Um, The way that you organize that movement is going to differ. Let's say you're 
generating movement and your knee angle is slightly different than the previous attempt. You might make up for that that difference by bending more at the elbow of the pulling arm or bending less on the elbow of the arm that's catching the hold or something like that. It's, it's going to change a little each time. Two different movements, same outcome. And mm-hmm. this is what we mean by movement variability. Um, that that even though you're getting the same outcome, the movement is going to be a little different, sometimes called repetition without repetition. Um, this theory says that one of the differences between expert and novice movers is often that the experts have better functional movement variability. They can adapt to changes without changing the outcome, whereas lesser skilled athletes will often have an amount of movement variability that changes the outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think another one of these points too is that variability can either be a good or bad thing depending on the right. sport. So, you know, certain sports require very, very little variability to perform well. And these experts will have that smaller amount of variability inherently in their technique of whatever activity they're doing. In other right. sports, like you mentioned, they, we need a little more variability to get the desired outcome depending on certain inputs and such. And the more skilled or higher level of expert, your higher, highest elite may have more (laughs) of that variability. Yeah. And as as I understand it, the, those sports will often be, you know, they, they have less variability in certain pieces of their movements Mm -hmm. and then they're able to adapt, you know, in later parts of the movement or, or something like that. Right. Um, Whereas the lesser skilled athletes, even in those cases, won't be able to adapt to the small changes um, that happen in these movements that for them require less variability. Yeah, correct. And um, I think they mentioned a study in this paper breaking down sort of what we're talking about where uh, the author of this paper actually performed another study in 2004 where he took some skilled baseball players and they did a hitting task under just normal conditions where they were going to hit a, an amount of, of balls in a simulated simulated batting cage, to put, to put it simply. I um, mean, one was just normal time, and then the other trial was a pressure condition where they were told they had one, the, you know, it was the World Series, they needed to make this hit to bring a run home. They had people in the lab to cheer or boo, depending on what they did. Yeah, yeah. And there was actually a mo- monetary uh, consequence from how well they did. If they did well, they won some money. So there was some pressure there and they found that, um, the pressure and in relation to pressure and skill, um, the higher pressure and lower levels of skill, there was more variability in the timings of certain components of their swings. So mm-hmm. this movement variability does change based on that pressure, which in theory forced their focus of attention more inward onto the internal aspects of the skill as opposed to the external outcome. Yep. And they were getting fewer hits. Um, so right. not only is their movement changing, but the the outcome is worse. And this has also been seen in golf. Um, and it's been seen in several sports that this is what's, what's happening, that you know, movement variability is increasing in a bad way. The outcome is being changed. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the... Uh elements that this 2004 paper used to see where their focus of attention was in that higher pressure situation 
They uh, used the skilled batters. They were better able to see what direction their bat was moving under in the pressure trial as compared to the baseline where they weren't under pressure. So that um, highlighted the fact that their focus was more on how their swing is, their internal components of their swing, as opposed to normally when they're just focusing on the external outcome. Yeah, and that, that seems really counterintuitive, right? I mean, mm-hmm. for me, it... it I would think when someone is doing better, they're better attuned to their movement. Um, But in this case, as they got worse, they could better tell which direction their bat was moving. Um, I think that's fascinating. It is. It kind of brings to mind the old um, saying about just learning something where you have unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, right? and then conscious competence, and then finally unconscious competence where – you just do it. You don't think about it. You just execute and right. pressure or more challenging situations maybe force you to move backwards along that paradigm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Number two is changes in multi-joint coordination. Um, we talked about this a little bit. When you're first learning a new movement, especially as a beginner, there are you know innumerable ways you could try to move your body in order to reach the desired outcome. Uh, these are what famous neurophysiologist Nikolai Bernstein calls the degrees of freedom. And one of the ways that beginners often solve the degrees of freedom problem, like how do I move all these joints to make this thing work, uh, is by freezing some of those degrees of freedom. So they lock down some of their joints in some particular orientation so that they can then explore with other joints. Um, as they practice and begin to better understand what's required, they'll begin to unfreeze some of those degrees of freedom. It's, it's been suggested that experts, when they're put under stress or in these high-pressure situations, will often revert back to freezing the degrees of freedom to make the task seem less complex. Um, so in these studies, we can look at what are the degrees of freedom when they're performing in a in a non-pressure situation versus a pressure situation? Are they locking down certain joint angles and only exploring with others, or are they free to move how they want to? Mm -hmm. And I think you'll see that just from a visual perspective. Uh, A well-executed climbing sequence as opposed to one that's not as well-executed, there's definitely a degree of fluidity that you just just see. It's it's apparent. I think that could be a great broad visual representation of where some folks are freezing that freezing the amount of uh, freedom they have available to them to simplify things. Yep, exactly. Um, And funnily enough, the paper mentioned in this uh, review is actually a study that looked at the effects of anxiety on the movement behavior of novice rock climbers. So they had the participants of this study climb at two different heights on an indoor climbing wall and They found that when climbing higher on the wall, participants exhibited movements that are more rigid and less fluent than they did when climbing at the low height on the wall. And obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, for our intents and purposes, that's a very simple way to look at climbing performance as opposed to some of the other stuff we've looked at. But I think it's a good representation of how our movement can change based on pressure, anxiety, uh, circumstances where we could choke, or just the level of complexity of your task. Yeah. And I think we've all seen this, you know, I I have this really distinct memory of, um, 
doing this thing in the Red River Gorge that was a really old bolted route um, out on the, at this crag in the middle of nowhere. And the first bolt is really high off the ground. And um, it was quite a bit below my level of climbing at the time, my top level of climbing at the time. So I was able to do it pretty quickly. And then my friend who was trying it, tried it on top rope after I hung the rope up or was trying to lead it, but was getting really scared jumping off. And I said, why don't you just try it on my top rope? And he's like, no, that's not the problem. That moves just hard for me. And I'm like, try it on the top rope once. And as soon as he was on, as soon as he was on top rope, he did it really easily. Um, I got to ask what route is this? Oh gosh. I can't even remember the name of it, yep. Paul. It's at hen's nest. Um, oh man. It's this that is weird, out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, weird little bolted face climb. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, fear will very often shut us down or anxiety. Um, we get more rigid. We're not able to access the movement that we want to or that we could if that anxiety or that fear or that pressure weren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I looked at a dart throwing study from 2010 and... Um, the, also there, the externally focused group had better throwing accuracy and more movement variability at their joints. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're cueing them with internal focus or external focus and the group who was cued to focus externally, um, on the dart or on the target. Uh, I don't remember the exact conditions for that study, but they ended up with not only more movement variability in their joints, um, but better throwing accuracy. I mean, and intuitively you think about that too, if the main goal of your, of the task or what you're told to do is focus on all these internal factors, you're going to tighten everything up because you've got so much things you need to deal with and figure out that you're going to have to reduce the range of where you let these things move as opposed to like, Hey, throw this at the board, try and get in the bullseye. You're going to organize a little more intuitively. Yeah. Yeah. And that this is all saying, you know, our bodies are really good at organizing themselves to do a task if we let them do it instead of trying to force it essentially. And I thought they brought up a good point in this section too, because they actually referred back to the movement variability uh, section or the point that we uh, just talked about where they said it may seem contradictory that in this case, in terms of multi-joint coordination, reducing the degrees of freedom reduces movement variability, but don't we want more movement variability or vice versa? But they made a good point and referenced the Baylock and Gray that these effects represent a temporary regression to a lower skill level or earlier level of skill acquisition, which I think is a really important point to pull from all of us is that is kind of the overarching framework of kind of where we sit for all these things and how they, where they represent where we are, relative to where we normally are. And then as the circumstances changes or we face pressure, we may be regressing back down that timeline of skill acquisition. And that's what these changes could represent. Right, exactly. So moving more like a novice again, or an intermediate climber again, as opposed to continuing to move like an expert when the pressure is on. Yeah, well said. I like that. That's That's the way. All right. Number three is uh, changes in movement economy. And, you know, honestly, I don't think this one needs a whole lot of introduction. Most climbers understand that movement economy is important. 
we're all familiar with like the idea of over gripping. Mm-hmm. Um, as the pressure sets in, we tend to be less economical in our movement. We get rigid. We use more energy than necessary. You know, we start telling ourselves and our partners not to blow it. And we start over gripping our attention reverts to doing the move perfectly. And then we're off, you know, that's yeah. kind of how, how I regularly see it play out mm-hmm. when I'm out climbing. I've felt it. I've done it. It's absolutely. It's, it, it's of course. <laughs> yeah. That one. Yeah. Like you said, that one's, that one's pretty just cut and dry. Yeah. Which is kind of nice to have every now and then in studies. Cause that doesn't happen often. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you know, they, they looked at it in, in several other studies as well. I think they talk about the same dart study in here. Um, mm-hmm. That they're, they also were gathering EMG activity during that same dart study. And there was a reduction in EMG activity for the external focus of attention group who had better accuracy and, and more movement variability, you know, in their joints. Right. So, and there's so it appeared a, they were being more economical. Yep, absolutely. There's also a basketball study too, where they were looking at free throws and the two, uh, groups of participants one of them their focus of attention was on the basket and making the shot and the internal focus condition was they had to focus on their wrist movement and mm-hmm. they showed that there was um more bicep and tricep emg activity when you were focusing on the wrist movements they were using more muscular energy to complete the same task so in theory a little less efficient less skilled in performing that movement in that internal focus condition yeah sounds like exactly what you had mentioned that you tell somebody to focus on something in their body and they're going to tighten up. They're going to try harder. They're going to put more effort there. Mm-hmm. You know? So more energy, less economy. Yep. All right. Uh, number four, changes in motor control strategy. Um, motor control strategies are essentially the pattern we use to create a movement. Um, whether that's in the order in which we activate muscles or how we initiate movement or it might be that in one strategy, we drive more through our hips and legs and have to do less work with our upper body when we, you know, when we get to our desired position, whereas another strategy might be to reduce the amount of force we're applying through our lower body and then have to increase the force we need to create through our upper body in order to stay on the wall. So essentially just changing the order of things to reach the same outcome, Mm -hmm. Um, different motor control strategies in order to achieve it. Yeah. And, uh, Baylock and gray, who we mentioned earlier, um, looked at some putting, uh, golf putters to examine this shift in control strategy. And they had an experiment where there was two different, uh, situations. One was attentional control was uh, manipulated via two different secondary tasks. So they would, during their putting stroke, they would have to judge, they would, a tone or an audio tone was played during their putting stroke. And they were, while they were putting the ball, they had to judge the frequency of that tone. And then they also had to judge whether the the tone occurred closer to the start or end of their putting stroke when it came out, which, you know, just sounds wildly stressful to me. That's so much (laughs) shit to focus on. Um, But then they also looked at putting performance for all, for all of this. And they actually showed that for the experts, the performance of the putting was least accurate when they had to judge whether the tone occlude closer to the starting or end point of their putt 
which signified that they were putting more conscious attention on their putt and all the components of their putt to know where that tone occurred, which again shows that shift in focus that's brought on by pressure or challenging situations and moving them further back along that paradigm of yep. uh, skill acquisition and where you're at in the learning of that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm totally hypothesizing here, but I, I think we see something similar to this in climbing when we, when we ask someone to do something different during a move, you know, something like, you know, focus on pulling harder with this arm when you're reaching for this hold. And then when they do that, suddenly their feet are cutting when they usually stay on. Um, you know, we've effectively pushed their focus of attention inward and their motor control strategy has reverted to what I can only assume is a more novice motor mm-hmm. control strategy. Yeah. Or just the goal of the task has changed. The goal is no longer to latch the next hold. The goal is to pull with the toe. So whatever else happens, as long as I pull with the toe, we're good. So. Yep. Totally. All right. Let's, uh, you know, that's the four, uh, different types of movement effects that have been seen in the research. Um, so let's, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how we can use this in our climbing and in our coaching. Please, all right, I really need a break here, okay? Like many of us who are focused on performance, I'm a creature of habit. I spent the first 45 years of my life always choosing chocolate over vanilla, every single time. Well, not anymore. Gnarly Vanilla Way changed all that. Whether it's sprinkled over my breakfast cereal or blended with fruit, gnarly creatine, and gnarly collagen for a pre-session snack, vanilla has taken over as the flavor of choice. Responsibly sourced, nothing artificial, and also available in a vegan version, gnarly protein comes in a steel can that's infinitely recyclable. The nutrition science is good, and they care about the environment. Now. Don't get me wrong, I still keep a can of chocolate protein in the cabinet because mixing chocolate and vanilla together is the best recovery protein drink around. You just have to try it for yourself. Use code BETA15, that's beta one for 15% off your next order at gonarly.com or click the link in the show notes to have the code automatically applied. So I'll go back to work for Christ's sake, okay? Okay, before we jump into this discussion of how to use all of this, I first wanted to shout out Rob Gray's podcast, the Perception and Action Action Podcast. It's one of the best resources for coaches and climbers who are interested in uh, digging into the details of movement research. Um, I actually found it when I was trying to come up with formats for this show. Um, so I've, I've listened now listened to hundreds of his episodes since, and I'm a supporter on Patreon and we mentioned in the last episode, his book. Um, so between his research, his book and his podcast, certainly one of the best resources out there. And one of my favorite things about his podcast is it's not a two hour podcast. Like if you want to get actual information (laughs) about pretty complex subject matter, but understand it well, come away with some takeaways and get one done probably on your commute to work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough to beat. Yeah, it's fantastic. I got all these little pieces. And I, they're all part of the story, right? But they don't mean much on their own. But when you start telling me what you know, we start filling in the gaps. I'll have them in lock them before the sun goes down. 
Okay, one of the big issues with translating a lot of this to climbing that we discussed a little in the previous episode is that the majority of these studies are are looking at sports that are using an implement of some sort, you know, a golf club, a baseball bat, a, a basketball. Um, and we want to know how it works when we essentially are the implement. Um you know, where should our focus of attention be and what's the difference between an internal and external focus there? Um, because it's not going to be as simple as, you know, focus on your, the face of your putter while you swing or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went down this rabbit hole of looking at gymnastics and dance studies on the subject. Um, those were the two sports I could come up with or activities I could come up with that were the most similar to climbing. Um, and they're pretty fascinating, actually. I looked at a gymnastics study in the Journal of Sports Sciences, Sports Sciences from 2015. Um, and this study was by Abdallapur et al., but it included Gabby Wolf, who is a just an absolute giant in this field. Um, they looked at skilled gymnasts doing a, a fairly simple jump with a 180-degree turn. Um they were being given cues about where to focus and they measured their jump height while also giving the execution of the skill a quality rating. Mm -hmm. They had three groups, an internal focus, an external focus, and a control group who got no cues at all. What they found was that the external focus group jumped higher and had better movement quality ratings. Um, the external cue they were to focus on was a strip of tape across their chest. It was just, I want you to point this tape at this when you land. Um, so a really subtle difference from your own body, but still one that was able to get results. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's kind of fascinating when it's, yeah. you're the implement. And it, it's cool seeing these concepts, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's cool seeing these concepts show up in different fields, like the whole internal versus external cueing for coaching, where most of the, like strength coaching, like simple barbell lifts and such like that, where the external cue is in the majority of circumstances, probably going to improve execution of that movement. So mm -hmm. these same concepts keep getting validated, but yep. so are you saying we put strips of tape on climbers and I mean, maybe, you know, I could imagine in a situation like, um, say it's some like big jump cross that you're doing and you have to, you know, rotate your torso away from the wall in the middle of the air to catch this hold. Maybe that's a, that's part of the cue. If they're having trouble figuring that out, instead of just telling them to turn, you know, point the front of your shirt at this wall when in the middle of this move, you know, maybe that helps them learn that move without bungling everything else that leads up to it. I will say there's a Boulder prom in Stonefort, pretty famous uh, Tennessee thong where one of the last moves is a giant move to a almost blind good hold. Mm -hmm. First time I ever did the move, I actually put my hand on the hold. I made a mark with chalk on my forearm where like the lip of that little sloper Yep. And I was like, I want to get that chalk mark to that point on the sloper and stuck the move. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> totally right there. I looked at uh, another gymnastic study from 2013 by Lawrence et al. in which participants had no experience. 
and they were shown a short routine consisting of some really simple movements, a lunge, arabesque, and a full turn. They practiced the routine and then went through several trials with different cues on where their attention should be directed. Um, this study found that nobody did better than any others. Um, and one thing they posited here is that because dance has a vague outcome, meaning it's all about quality, mm -hmm. that these participants didn't really have a concrete idea of what quality means in that context. So the focus of attention didn't really make a difference for them. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that for me, at least that speaks to um, the coaches out there who want to say, this is good technique. This is bad technique. I want you to do a good drop knee. You know, I want you to do a good heel hook. What the hell does that mean? That's not a, that's not a very concrete outcome that I can mm -hmm. direct my attention toward. Um, so, so maybe those types of cues are something we can throw out. Yeah. And just uh, me trying to draw lines between those two studies you just shared. Like one was a group of you said pretty experienced gymnasts, pretty accomplished, experienced yep. gymnasts, gymnasts, and these these people weren't with any experience, right? Right. And referring back to this paper, I think they mentioned that the external focus is much more um, effective with elite or more skilled performers. So maybe right. that lack of difference just could be reflected in the experience level of the people in that study as mm -hmm. well. And something we need to take in mind when we coach people climbing, like totally. finding the right method of coaching a certain movement or technique. And like, like you said, there's not a good drop knee or a good heel hook, but able being able to meet the athlete with where they're at and test retest, try this. Does it mm -hmm. make the movement better or does the outcome improve when you tried this method as opposed to the other? So yeah. And, you know, we would expect to see here that an internal focus because they're beginners would, would be the better cue. Um, they're saying the reason it wasn't is maybe because it's all about quality and, mm. and they don't even really know what that means. So, you know, maybe even for beginner climbers, uh, if, if we're moving their focus internally in order to help them, uh, in those initial stages, we still have to give them some sort of concrete outcome as opposed to just talking in terms of quality of movement. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's more like and climbing is actually a really nice situation in that the outcome of a movement is almost always you stay get the to the hold, stick yeah. the hold, you know? Yeah. So we've got that built in, which is quite nice actually. Mm -hmm. Which is great for reinforcing, you know, those strategies too. Hey, this strategy worked keep using this strategy in the future it can lead us down dead ends every now and then, but you know, odds are eventually we'll end up where we want to go. Mm -hmm. Um, as, as with anything, the, the definitions of internal and external are heavily debated, you know, in running studies, as well as a few other sports, there's, there's this further delineating of types of attention, associative and dissociative, meaning, um, monitoring functions that are related to the task or things that are completely unrelated. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to be dissociative in climbing. 
uh, unless it's an absolute mindless ladder with tread wall laps, you know? Um, so I don't think we need to go that far down these rabbit holes and talking about attention. Um, I think climbing ultimately sets up really well for this, as long as we are mindful of it as coaches and not always directing the attention inward. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially as you move into, as comps continue to grow and the competition style of climbing continues to grow, those pressure situations I think are becoming more like other high level sports in terms of that pressure situation. You know, you mentioned before, you know, we have the last day of the trip. We have, you know, our last go of the day. Um, We're nervous above a bolt. Um, Those things. Yeah. That's pressure and can be extremely stressful. And then we also have this competition's pressure, which I think can also be stressful for different reasons as well. You've got, you know, now you have stadiums of people watching you rock climb. Like that's hasn't really happened that much except for the last, you know, 15 right. years. So dealing with that is where we see more of this choking, choking environment, I feel like these days. So training that could be helpful too. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it happens to folks just at busy crags too. Yeah. Um, people get really tight and, you know, have a hard time climbing well when they're in front of a crowd. Um, so I think it's a good reason to, practice, you know, whether you're a coach or a climber, um, as a coach, it's a good reason to practice learning to cue externally. Um, and as a climber, it's a a good thing to practice, you know, can I find a way to flip myself into this, you know, external Mm -hmm. sort of focus of attention. Um, and that brings up this question that I have about all of this. And, and I actually thought of you specifically when this popped into my head. Um, what about the common cues that I know we both use, um, things like tight or breathe, um, or like you're, you're very good at timing just an exhale to get someone to exhale. Um, and I've seen, some coaches not only the, make the mistake of overcuing, but constantly overcuing in a fashion that shifts internally. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just curious: Are things like tight or breathe doing that? What do you think? I think yelling at someone and you know, just going from because I do love to do that. I I think that someone did that to me it was way back, I don't know what 15, 14 years ago when I was climbing. It just like clicked. It was instant. Mm-hmm. Um, just relaxed. I breathed, but I didn't think, oh no, I'm not breathing or, oh, I need to take a breath. It's just like, I just did it without thinking about it. It was unconscious and that just stuck with me. And I think that's cut. Co- that could be based on what we've talked about today instead of, oh, someone's telling me to breathe. Am I breathing? Maybe I should breathe. You just hear outside of yourself a breath right. and then that just starts the process. So I think that is a good way to go about telling someone tight or yelling, breathe. I think that might be a better option because of that external focus. Um, yeah, tight, I, th- I, don't I know, think so too. I don't know how you'd go about that, making that more external. Um, that'd yeah, be an issue I don't know. I, I, I'm, it, it's one of those that I, I like, like I like saying tight, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that, that experienced climbers while climbing, um, 
And I actually looked into a dance study where they were talking about this idea um, that moving between focuses is what happens during a performance a lot of the time. So um, coming internally for a second to check up on something or to notice something and then immediately moving it back externally to the outcome of that movement. Um, I suspect that happens more, that there's this gray area there and it's not a totally black and white issue of is your focus internal or external? I think we're always checking in. Um, Things are always black and white though. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I say that every other episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I, I do think listening to this episode could cause some folks to think, oh, we're not supposed to pay attention to what's happening. We're supposed to just black out while we climb, you know, and that's not really what's being said here. If you hit a hold and you can feel that you're not in quite the right dimples of the hold or you're starting to slide on the hold, that's just information that's that's being given to you. And it's still external. It's mm-hmm. it's the hold that you're, you're focused on there. Um, and we need that information. That's necessary information for the next move. You know, it's going to change our motor strategy. It's going to change our movement variability. Things are going to reorganize in such a way to make the next move work, even though you're sliding off of this sloper slowly. Um, so it's not that we're trying to ignore what's happening. Um, it's more about we're not trying to get into this robotic mode of I have to do these movements perfectly. Mm-hmm. And being able to, like you said, switch back and forth in and out of, you know, the minutia, then back to the outcome and being able to flip that switch. Yep. And, you know, I right before we got on this call, I was thinking about all the times sport climbing um, that I've like gotten through the crux and then I go into preserve the send mode, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I start crawling up the wall. I'm climbing at this extremely slow pace. Um, And I think what I'm doing there is I'm locking down some of the degrees of freedom. You know, I'm, I'm not getting too wild, um, too wild for me. You know, that's going to be totally different for somebody like Tamoa who can be really wild and still be well in control. You're not pogoing to the anchors? (laughs) (laughs) Not unless I have to. Um, So I do think there is a reason actually to practice that sort of Mm -hmm. slow robotic movement. And that's one of the reasons I like our like sloth monkey drill, um, learning to climb like that really controlled where some of the degrees of freedom are frozen is probably not a bad thing. If you go into preserve the send mode and, and you're just locking things down because your focus has gone internal and you're trying to climb perfectly instead of getting like, oh no, my focus is internal. I need to externally focus now. (laughs) Maybe just being good at climbing in that situation isn't a bad thing. Yeah. I think, you know, that's where we have all these opportunities for practice, like with that sloth monkey drill and in these situations where, you know, maybe the outcome isn't as, I don't know if important's the right word, but 
as emotionally important, I guess would be maybe the way to go about it. Like Mm -hmm. in terms of just like a climbing session at the gym, as opposed to your last day on your project where you can expose yourselves to the more internal or less optimal ways of moving. Yeah. So you can at least do it when you get in into that position. Yeah, totally. I think it's tricky. Um, I think as coaches, we just want to be mindful of the fact that novices and people in a learning situation, um, internal focus seems to work pretty well in those cases. But as we get better, as we get more skilled, we want to start moving those cues more externally. Um, Climbing sets up really well for this. So I think I think coaches are in a good position as long as they're mindful of it. And I think this paper overall was super helpful in giving us those four different buckets of ways as coaches we can intervene and make changes in those strategies in different categories instead of just, oh, you're being too external or you're being too internal. Like, how? Yeah. So, you know, we've got these four four buckets to start exploring and see if we can start creating some improvement. Right. Totally. All right. You can find both Paul and I all over the internet by following the links right there in your show notes. You can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you have questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up, community.powercompanyclimbing.com. Show yourself some love and visit this season's sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition at gonarly.com. Use the code BETA15, that's all caps, for 15% off. And also, if you're a first-timer to to Gnarly, what you want is the vanilla protein and the raspberry hydrate. You can thank me later. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and please – Tell all of your friends who are constantly telling you that you'll send if you just focus on pulling with your lats instead of your traps, that you have the perfect podcast for them. We'll see you next week when we take a long overdue look at the performance characteristics of female climbers and whether or not we see the same predictors as in the largely male-focused studies. Can't wait. We'll see y'all then. It's done. You keep saying that and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay? You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Don't nod your head.